Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and journalist who twice a week discusses military matters while also adding in a little motivation, wisdom, and history. I do my best to cover our military, where it's at, what they're doing, where they might be going, and any conflicts and hotspots that could lead to military intervention. Besides covering this news, I also try to share some motivation and wisdom with each episode while also working as hard as I can to unite this country. Without question, I feel like our wide division and animosity toward those with whom we disagree is the greatest threat our country faces. So twice a week, I do my best to bridge this great divide while also reminding each of us that most of us are being played by divisive political and news figures who are ripping apart this great country just so they can reach a higher office or gain more followers and add dollars. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. While we face great challenges as a country, America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point. And they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the October 7th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. Uh, in this edition, we'll be discussing the decision by OPEC to cut oil production by 2 million barrels per day. Uh, UK- we're going to talk about Ukraine a little bit. We're going to talk about the leadership situation in Russia, what might happen there. We'll do a little bit about what elections in November might mean for the military. We'll do um, the latest on the reaction to North Korea firing a ballistic missile over Japan. We'll also briefly discuss a raid that the U.S. conducted in Syria. And then we'll talk some about China and Taiwan. Then a little bit of news about some Arctic operations for America. And we'll finish all of this by discussing, as usual, motivation and wisdom at the end of the episode. So before we get into all of that, let me bring up just a couple of things. First of all, next week, um, I'm going to be on a ship, going to be doing my first cruise as a civilian at least, and uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I've been on a military ship for six months, and I can't say that was very much fun, but next week I get to take my first cruise, so I'm kind of excited about that. Everybody says it's going to blow me away. Can't wait to do that. only bring that up because... I'm going to attempt to record podcasts next week, both Tuesday and Friday, and yeah, I know that's nuts, but I'm kind of a workaholic, and I've been building some great momentum, and I really don't want to miss it, and my wife has been very kind and sweet and has agreed to allow me to do so without killing me, so I have the best wife ever. So I'm going to try to do it. I wanted to say, though, that uh, if by chance I can't, now you'll know why, Uh, secondly, I'm not going to be able to take the amazing microphone and um, earphones and the stuff that I usually use. So the quality may not be quite as good. So I appreciate your patience and consideration if that's the case. But I have tested it and it didn't sound that bad or as bad as I thought once I ran it through some editing software programs, which kind of makes me kick myself that I spent money that may have not been necessary. I'm not sure. I did a, The test I did was really short. It was like 20 or 30 seconds, so maybe it would make a difference over a bit. But if it doesn't sound as well, now you know why. If by chance I am not able to get internet or have some issues with my laptop or whatever, 
then you know why. You'll know that uh, Stan is on a cruise ship and that the Russians have not gotten him yet. They may keep trying, though. You never know. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Now, the second thing I wanted to bring up was I kind of wanted to run my commercial, if I could, for just a second. As you know, we put these out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's mostly military and defense news as well, some history and motivation and wisdom. But I want to, and as I say every, you know, I guess every episode, the Tuesday poster delayed by a day is a way to kind of try to encourage folks to subscribe and, um, and be a paying member, and that's $5 a month. But if you don't, you're just waiting a day for the content. But I thought I would do just a quick push to get folks to hopefully share the episode a bit more with some friends and family. I know a lot of you have been listening to me for weeks and weeks. And so if nothing else, just share it with some other people, and I'll share why. And then, But if you're on the line, you're thinking about subscribing, that would totally make my day. And here's the reasons I think you should, very briefly. First, I clearly believe in the mission of this, of trying to highlight what our military is doing, trying to unite the country. And let's be honest, most people get their news from the left or the right, so I'm kind of in a small river here. And then another thing is as a you know, as our support grows, I think I can make the show better. I feel like I'm not able to put in quite the amount of effort that I would like to. Um, I think with a little bit more support, there's a couple other things I'd like to do, make it a little better, and I think I can justify my time just a tad better, because I am it does compete with, you know, I've said before, I have a day job, but it also competes with my fiction writing, and that's going pretty well. But I do enjoy doing this, and so that would help me justify my time just a bit more. But the biggest reason is, I ain't gonna lie, guys, like, the, I truly believe the division in our country right now is the greatest threat this nation faces. Like, without question, we're kind of going through some rough waters and I kind of think I'm well-positioned to help pull us together. I think I have just a naturally kind disposition. I don't like controversy. I don't like confrontation. But I've also kind of uniquely situated in that I've been in the military. I also graduated from college, so I kind of got that bridge. Some some prior military or blue-collar, you know, and they're kind of, you know, anti-college. So I, I totally get that. But I haven't shared with you guys that most of my family is from the country, and I grew up hunting and fishing on the weekends, and I attended a church out in the country my entire life. It was a missionary Baptist church, so I was a little far to the right. Uh, and I, did, I stayed there until I left for the military. But at the same time, during that entire time, even though most of the weekends were in the country and the church was out in the country, I actually lived in the city of Knoxville, and I attended and graduated an urban school and it had a uh, 60 plus percent minority enrollment. So I kind of like, I've always had like this natural bridge. People always say I'm likable, but I just get people. And I also just kind of like people. But I just really feel like as we are so divided that, uh, man, we, we got to come together. And so I kind of feel like I'm uniquely positioned to do that. And so in the, in on the one hand, I'm, you know, I could just focus on the books and the day job. But honestly like man i feel like this is kind of important so there you go that's the sales pitch at a minimum if you could tell some friends if you everyone knows someone who would probably enjoy the show so just share it on facebook or an email or whatever and if you're on the line thinking about throwing a few bucks but you haven't yet if you could that'd help encourage me help justify putting a little bit more into it either way no pressure we're gonna keep going and so uh that's the sales pitch and with that let's get to the news
As I said, we're going to start with the decision by OPEC to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day. So the story, quoting from the Washington Post, I've got it linked in the source notes. I'll read a couple lines from it. A coalition of oil-producing nations led by Russia and Saudi Arabia announced Wednesday it will slash oil production by 2 million barrels per day in a rebuke to President Biden that could push up gas prices worldwide worsen the risk of global recession and bolster Russia in its war in Ukraine. The move by the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries and its partners prompted a blistering reaction from White House officials and reverberated almost immediately through domestic and global financial markets, threatening higher energy costs for the United States and European countries already grappling with inflation and economic instability. That was the news. Got a quote from Biden from another article where he said the move was a, quote, a disappointment. And it says that there are problems in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. It's probably the biggest understatement of the century right there. Now, already a couple of things are already being thrown out as possible almost punishment or uh, recriminations back to Saudi Arabia. One of them is that the administration is discussing talking to Congress about repealing a long-standing antitrust law that would allow to um, reduce OPEC's control of what they charge on energy prices. Now, I haven't studied that at great length, but that was one thing thrown out. Um, if that were to happen, apparently OPEC, Saudi Arabia, etc. would not be real happy. Also, there's a congressman that threw in some legislation or would said he would introduce legis, uh, legislation to require the Biden administration to remove U.S. troops and missile defense systems from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So that would be a huge move. We've obviously had troops in Saudi Arabia since at least 1991 when Desert Shield, Desert Storm happened. There have at least historically been a huge ally. We've sold lots of military equipment to them. We've helped them with military equipment in their war in Yemen. So if we were to start getting to the point of not quite being on the same page with them uh, militarily, then we are definitely going into some grayer areas. So those were a couple of things thrown out. So let's talk about the political part of this for just a moment. As background, you may recall that President Biden in July, traveled to Saudi Arabia. That was a controversial uh, trip. And he did the fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as many call him. And so President Biden took a lot of heat from that, or for that, from progressives. At the time, even myself supported the trip. You know, sometimes you got to deal with people and have political realities. But I kind of assumed that at that time, gas prices were, you know, pretty dadgone high. They've gone down some since then, but I assumed that the visit would help restore relations and that it would help turn the gas pumps on, so to speak, which would lower prices here. That hasn't happened, and so I will be the first to admit that I was wrong, and I will also share some things that uh, share just a little bit of the reaction that I've seen online. First one I'm going to share is from David 
uh, Rathkoff. He's a columnist, uh, writes for the Daily Beast. He's on the Board of Contributors in USA Today. He's got a couple hundred thousand followers on Twitter. He weighs in on things quite often. Let me read this. Quote, I was one of those folks who thought the president's trip to Saudi Arabia went pretty well. Today's OPEC decision says I was wrong. The Saudis have sent a clear message that they just don't care about relations with Biden. Good luck with that. He said, I still believe Biden's initiative to reach out to Saudi Arabia made sense, but there was a downside risk. Today's OPEC decision not only hurts the U.S. and our allies, it helps Russia and Biden's political opponents. Damage has been done. The administration's relationship with MBS is now infused with distrust. Pretty strong comments, correct? Right? You guys agree with that? Let me share a comment from a Democratic senator, Chris Murphy. And he's a member of the Foreign Relations Committee. He's got actually quite a bit of power. And he immediately reacted to the news by saying, I thought the whole point of selling arms to the Gulf states, despite their human rights abuses, nonsensical Yemen war, working against U.S. interests in Libya, Sudan, etc., was that when an international crisis came, the Gulf could choose America over Russia slash China. I followed Senator Murphy for a while as far as his public statements on Twitter, and that is a very strong statement from him. And again, he's a Democrat, so he's a member of President Biden's party. That was a strong statement. Now, I wanted to share one other one. This is from a guy who's a author. He's on the Atlantic Council. He's retired CIA. Uh, I'll probably butcher the name. His name is Mark Polymeropoulos. And he says this. One reason I thought the trip was okay at the time was the notion that staff work prior to the trip would have secured a firm Saudi assist regarding OPEC, a deliverable set in stone. Yet this obviously didn't occur. A huge staffing error. The trip should have never happened without that. And then he adds that my view of the visit has changed dramatically. And he said, I will admit when I'm wrong. And I was dead wrong. MBS is giving the administration a big middle finger. So stupid and short-sighted. Not what a true ally does. Very disappointing. So I wanted to share those. I've got all of those comments in the source notes. You can find them and where they were said. But... If you dig into the comments some more, now some folks say, you know what, this is proof that the Saudis under MBS, who had great relationships with uh, Trump, that they're basically throwing in and wanting a Republican uh, change in government. So obviously the Saudis invested in Jared Kushner's um, investment fund, $2 billion. They were close to Trump. Trump had a visit there. So I think there is some arguments to be made that's the case. I will say that I saw a statement that I wish I had saved, and I didn't. And as you know, on social media, this was on Twitter. Sometimes if you don't save something, then you can't find it. But there was a Saudi diplomat who had said, back when Saudi Arabia lowered prices down to almost where... If you remember at one time, gas was so low so low, and oil prices were so low that it was almost like the barrel cost more than the oil. And I can't remember if it was like $5 a, a barrel or less than that, but 
he pointed out some media coverage where Americans said, oh, the Saudis are trying to put all American production companies out of business. So you could make the argument that the Saudis are kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. It's a fair point. And you could make the argument that maybe they're wanting you know, push toward a Republican agenda or to assist Trump as he tries to work his way back to the White House. You could probably make that argument, too. I'm not sure exactly what the truth is. It might be self-interest. It might be, you know, they have a limited amount of oil. No one really knows how much they have. And so maybe the prices or, you know, maybe it was just purely an economic decision. Maybe China and Russia twisted their arms. That might have been part of it, too. No one really knows what the truth is. I'm mostly curious about, was there an, an agreement before the trip that the staff had set up that the Saudis decided perhaps you know, a month or two afterward, and perhaps with the persuasion from China and Russia to basically change their mind on that deal. Because I don't believe the staff are totally incompetent. I don't believe President Biden laid it all on the line to go there and be embarrassed like this. So I would love to know if there was a deal in place. I'd say we'll find out in the coming days. But if there was a deal in place and the Saudis decided to go against it. Now, to me, the Saudis have always played a very dangerous line. They've always been our ally, but everyone has issues with the Saudis. The way they treat women, they funded religious madrasas across the world. Um, they have indirectly, at least, helped fund terrorist actions through these religious education, these madrasas, these places where you just learn the Quran, but you learn it from a very fundamental interpretation of the reading. Fifteen of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. Osama bin Laden was originally from there. So we've got, they've got a complicated history, and they've always been pretty good at walking that tightrope. They were really close to the uh, Bushes back in 2000. They've usually stayed pretty close to both political parties. So if they've thrown in with the Republican Party, then that's it's a dangerous proposition because no one really knows exactly how the elections will go. So interesting. So there's a lot to, to throw out there. Don't know exactly what the truth is, and maybe it'll come up at some point, but I would love to hear what you all think. So reach out to me on social media. Tell me what you think is going on. I would love to hear your thoughts. So that was the first topic I wanted to address, and I think we've covered that one pretty well. So let's move to the next one. Let's go ahead and move to Ukraine. I wanted to share part of an article from Defense One. It was written by a prior Marine. His name is Eric Swab. He served as a Marine infantry officer in Iraq. He served in the UN peacekeeping mission in Liberia. He also served as general counsel of the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee. So he did his time in uniform and obviously is gone on to a career in law and well-informed on the issues. And backing up just a second, when we first started assisting Ukraine after Russia invaded, for me it was about stopping a bully, about right versus wrong, which side we come down on. But as I'm about to read this small part, there's actually a lot more benefit that the U.S. is getting than we're even thinking about. So the article is titled, just how long should the U.S. send aid to Ukraine? And here's the part I wanted to just briefly read. Should future U.S. assistance be measured in months 
or at most a few years, especially if Ukraine is no longer in danger of being overrun by Russia. So that right there is the question he posed, and obviously Ukraine is pushing the Russians back, and so already you can kind of sometimes hear people talk about, all right, do we need to keep doing all this? You know, they're defending themselves. They've pushed the Russians back. And especially of late, folks have been worried about an additional escalation. So you can kind of hear people starting to talk about putting the brakes on on additional aid or defensive aid. And this is what Swabert writes. The short answer is no. If the United States provides long-term assistance, likely for more than 10 years, not only could Ukraine secure its future against a revanchist Russia, Washington could gain a first-rate military partner. Because of its legitimate government, capable leaders, level of socio-economic development, highly motivated public and combat experience, among other factors, Ukraine has a strong foundation on which to build. As a result, U.S. support could have an exponential impact on Ukrainian military capabilities. The United States would be a major beneficiary, allowing U.S. forces to focus on potential conflicts outside of Europe over the coming years. So, I thought that was a great point by him, that especially as we align toward the Pacific and a increasingly almost strong-armed China that's pushing around smaller countries, uh, Ukraine could work as a, a serious roadblock and countering force to Russia that in will actually relieve U.S. demands in Europe. And I had never even thought about that. I'd been so focused on making sure they weren't overwhelmed um, by a much larger country that I hadn't even thought a little further out. But very interesting thoughts. Love to hear y'all's thoughts on that as well. And let's move just a bit further to... So, I wanted to share uh, one bit of social media. Just a great comment. Someone was uh, keeping up with Russian TV, and he said, Russian television hosts keep saying there are 55 countries raised a, a raid against us, and we fight alone. As if having so many enemies and lacking a single ally were a mitigating fact and not evidence of a complete failure of statecraft. There you go. That's your deep thought for the day. Maybe Russia needs to be a uh, better neighbor and they'd have more allies, right? I wanted to share one other kind of social media thing. Uh, Putin gave a crazy speech last week, which I didn't really cover, but it's just Putin being Putin and he's trying to rally his people while also trying to scare the West and... Because it's such a tired act, I don't like to try to amplify his message and scare Americans, so I didn't even cover it. But did want to share this uh, by a reporter, and she says, Watching Putin's mad speech, specifically the part about Russia's, quote, great liberation mission, end quote, all I can think about is the woman from Kherson I interviewed some weeks ago. Russia's security agents detained her entire family and interrogated her for several hours with a plastic bag over her head. All the while, she could hear her husband being beaten to a pulp in the next room. They kept asking me, Are you a fascist? I told them I was a Ukrainian. They said, There is no such people. We are one people. So I asked them, If we are one people, 
Why am I sitting here with a bag over my head while you are beating my husband to death? It's a fair question, right? <laughs> so if there is only one people and there's not Ukrainians, what what is this happening? So I thought that was worth sharing. And then I'll also put in the source notes, pretty cool video if you want to watch it. It's about two minutes long. You can watch a Russian tank move toward Ukrainian lines with a big white flag over its barrel and it had its main like main gun barrel and you can watch as they surrender themselves and their equipment to Ukrainian soldiers. Now a lot of analysts who've commented on that video, which is worth watching, it's about two minutes long. It's pretty scary actually because these are regular infantry somewhat out in the open behind a trench, but it's I'm sure there was a lot of danger involved. But this tank approaches, and they get it to stop. It's got white flags on it, obviously, on the barrel especially. And the Russians climb out, and they make sure they're disarmed. But it's pretty harrowing to watch. But as some analysts said, most likely, not only is it huge, that Russians drove a tank forward and surrendered. Because we know there's been talk that there are Russians having to fight at gunpoint. So it's kind of hard to surrender but it, most analysts believe that this tank had somehow communicated with the Ukrainians and, you know, basically arranged the surrender based on where the, where the uh, I guess, exchange takes place. It's kind of out in the open. And so there's a good chance that Ukrainians are now communicating with Russian soldiers and trying to work out additional surrenders, especially since the, ca the Russian casualties have been so high. But uh, I hope there's a lot more of that. I hope that a lot more Russians give up. Apparently, there's a small amount of reward if they give up working Russian equipment. So in this case, three soldiers in a tank drove forward, surrendered. Probably not the best news for Putin. And you can see that they're taken, they're treated well. And I'm sure it's starting to get out that if you do surrender to Ukraine, you know, you're not going to be tortured. You're not going to be treated like the Russians treat you. You're going to be fed, you're going to be kept warm, and you're, and I'd even seen on social media that the Ukrainians are arranging phone calls home every two or three days as an additional benefit to the soldiers to, you know, I, I think it's part of a PSYOPs campaign. I think it's a nice thing to do, obviously, but I think it they're also smart enough to know that it's not a bad thing to have Russian soldiers calling home and saying, actually, these Ukrainian people are pretty nice, they're feeding me. Blah, blah, blah. Everything Putin told us is a lie. So that's happening. And I'm obviously proud that the Ukrainians are handling themselves and remaining disciplined and showing so much dignity. It's, I'm sure that's hard to do with the amount of civilian casualties they've taken and with how wronged they've been. So let's talk a little bit about the fighting. There's not been any massive news as far as advances or anything, but the continued advances by the Ukrainians against the Russians is increasing the pressure against uh, Moscow and there's a it made several different news outlets one of the Russian officials in a Russian occupied part of Ukraine suggested and not like off the record but with his name by it by the statement that Russia's defense minister should shoot himself because of his army's failings. So that made pretty big news, because you don't speak out against someone high up, especially a Putin ally in Russia, unless, I'm not sure, you know, does, I don't know if this was 
approved by Putin. I don't think that's the case, but I think they know they can't really speak out against Putin, so you have to blame someone. And so the defense minister is increasingly being blamed. And I shared another story in the source notes that the hardline nationalists are increasingly attacking this Russian defense minister. And, you know, in a country like Russia or Iraq, when Saddam Hussein was there, if you are in the outs, so to speak, if you become the guy that dropped the ball, it usually doesn't end up end up too well for you. There's not like a cushy retirement package or anything. You might end up in jail, and that's if you're lucky. And so, but I wanted to read a little bit from the second article about the pushback against this Russian defense chief. Uh, he's 67. He has no military background, but he served as defense minister for Russia for nearly a decade. So obviously this poor performance by Russia's military, he's been there for 10 years. He hasn't, he didn't take over six weeks ago or six months ago. Been there for 10 years, so this is kind of all on him. Uh, he's been part of Putin's leadership team since Putin was elevated to the presidency back in 1999. Uh, up until this war, he was actually one of the most popular politicians. And he was even often talked about as a potential successor to Putin, according to the uh, Washington Post story that I linked to. So this guy was like Mr. Popular, possible Putin follower that could be elevated. And now he's taking all of this heat. He also, the story talks about he was Russian, one of Russia's longest serving ministers going back to 1991. So that's like 10 years before Putin took over. Uh, when President Boris Yeltsin named him Minister for Emergency Situations. So this guy's like, man, he's been in government for almost 30 years now, and so super close to Putin, and the article even talks about that he often travels with Putin on trips to Siberia and other places, so a lot of pressure starting to be added to this guy. And like I said, I think it's partly that you can't, you can't uh, you can't directly criticize Putin in Russia and not end up like accidentally falling out a sixth floor window or something. So maybe this is just the next guy, but it was interesting. I don't know enough about Russian politics, but it's just interesting to see that he was so popular for so long, one of the most popular, and to see his downfall that quickly. Not sure how all of that will shake up. It's not like this is rocket science, but you know, often governments will find a scapegoat and then they'll blame that person and name someone else and then you know that way it's not Putin's fault this went well it was Putin's brilliant idea to do this and it would have worked except for this guy had a horrible army so we'll replace him and we'll get it fixed and everything's gonna be all right everyone calm down people so we'll see if Putin removes this guy or how that works out and I would love to know if Putin actually authorized the official to say this I don't know I don't know if he did or not. I have no idea, but I know that you have to be pretty careful criticizing the Putin government. And if this guy was that close to Putin, I'm not sure why uh, this Russian official would have the nerve to say this on the record in interviews, unless it was either green-lighted or he sees weakness and knows Putin won't care that Putin needs a scapegoat. And looks like it might be this guy, so we'll see. But having said that, at the same time, I wanted to share one other article. It's kind of along this same line of thinking. It was from the Washington Post as well. And the headline is, As Ukraine war falters, Russians ask a risky question. Could Putin fall? 
And I wanted to share just a couple little parts from that article. One, it highlights that Putin turned 70 today. And he came to power through, you know, a quasi-legal situation is how they described it. He was appointed as deputy prime minister and then acting prime minister by President Boris Yeltsin. And then Boris Yeltsin resigned within five months. So that catapulted him to become the presidency. Stepping away from that article a second, I did hear on one podcast, and I can't remember the official's name, but he's a Russian watcher. And uh, he had suggested that that might be what Putin does, the same thing Boris Yeltsin did, which is you appoint a successor who kind of runs it and becomes a new face, and then you stay out of the scenes, pulling the strings, but also that kind of keeps you safe if it's one of your right-hand men so that you don't end up in prison yourself or death. So that's one possibility. But the article even goes so far as to name potential successors for Putin. And I thought I would name these. So they include uh, the Security Council Secretary, which is a guy named Nikolai Patrushev. There's the former president, Dmitry Medvedev, which some of y'all may remember. Uh, Obama went to meet with him. That was with the famous reset. At first, I think American officials thought that this Medvedev could be dealt with, and it took a while for them to figure out that Putin was still pulling the strings, and then Putin took back over. Um, another one named was Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobayan, if I pronounce that right. And then apparently there's Patrushev's son named Dmitry, who's the agricultural minister. So the Washington Post and its story named four people that are possibilities. So just the fact that even four people are being named and that this is being talked about shows that uh, things aren't going too well for Putin right now. And so I'm not sure what his options are. He's too stubborn to pull back a bit and try to seek peace. Of course, the Ukrainians aren't going to give him peace as long as he controls any part of Ukrainian land. So he has pretty limited options right now. I did hear one other thing from a podcast that I wanted to share, which is that there's been six, 700,000 Russian men evacuate the country. And a lot of people have speculated, like, why would, why would Putin allow these men to flee the mobilization and not make them serve? And on the podcast I was listening to, the person speculated... Putin may actually want those men out of the country because these are 600 to 700,000 military age males who clearly do not support the war. And so it's safer for his regime for these gentlemen to be gone. And I had never thought about that. I'd kind of wondered why they didn't clamp down the borders more. But it makes sense. If these are potential fighters who might overthrow you and march on, you know, Moscow, why not just get them out of there? Let them leave. So that might be why he's let so many leave. We'll see. We'll keep up. With everything, I'll keep you guys posted and love to hear your thoughts on any of this. If you see any cool links, anything like that, as you know, I love hearing that stuff. Send it to me by social media and um, I'll follow I'll follow up on it and see if uh, I can nail down a little bit more about it and might even end up sharing it in the next podcast. And of course, if I share something you guys send me, I try to always give you a hat, hat tip, so it'd be rude not to do that, right? All right, let's move to the next subject. We had talked Tuesday about North Korea firing a ballistic missile over Japan itself, and I had told you guys I would keep up with any type of reaction or anything, or obviously we quoted the reaction, but any kind of like counter moves that happened afterward, and there has been a bit of one. The United States did a naval drill with the USS Ronald Reagan Carrier Strike Group, and they were joined by two Japanese Navy destroyers as well as one South Korean destroyer. 
those arrived in the Sea of Japan, and they conducted what was called trilateral, tri being the three countries, ballistic missile defense exercises. So apparently the U.S. has some capability to shoot down these ballistic missiles, and so they did a three-group three exercise to practice these drills, and there was just a quote from the article that said that uh, the exercises demonstrate the deep strength of our trilateral relationship with Japan in the Republic of Korea or South Korea, which is a resolute against those who challenge regional stability. So, and apparently there was a quote in it that it helped enhance the interoperability of the collective forces. So it's always important on big exercises like that, that there's usually a command ship, but then you integrate other uh, militaries, forces, other military forces into the group so that maybe a destroyer screening and, you know, you can only have one commander at a time. So it's good to work and, and try to make sure your communications work and just all the things that go into working with partner nations. So that was the response to the ballistic missile launch. And that's all I've seen so far, at least. Moving away from all the way in the Pacific to the Middle East, I wanted to briefly just share that there was a news release that uh, America conducted a risky in-person raid in Syria two days ago. It names the individual that was killed in that raid. I don't recognize the name, but the targeted individual was killed, one of his associates was wounded, and then two additional associates were detained by U.S. forces. So it sounds like we have some folks that we can at least question that may or may not be a part of ISIS. Uh, no U.S. forces injured or killed, and no civilians killed or wounded, according to the U.S., and they said there was no loss or damage to U.S. equipment. And there was a statement from a Pentagon uh, spokesperson who just said that a central command is committed to allies and partners, and they're working to defeat ISIS. So I mainly just mention that because it was a... I assume a, a fairly important person that they would have sent troops in to try to, to get him and or additional intelligence on the site, such as computers, servers, documents, etc. So not sure exactly who that individual was, but uh, his name's in the um, press release if you want to try to look him up and see if you can find out a little bit about him. But it was just a reminder that our forces are constantly out there doing dangerous things. And especially like this, these these things rarely make the news. And I just feel like it's important to highlight that part of our freedom and our safety is because men and women are putting their lives on the line and doing things we don't even know about. I know just speaking for myself, uh, when we did our small operation in 1997 in Albania, we evacuated almost a thousand Americans, but it didn't make the news as much as um, I thought it would have. So for us, it was something that was super important, but we came back and a lot of friends and relatives didn't even know about it. And so it's, you know, it it's kind of young or it's tough when you're young. You're like, I was 19 then to do something that's, you know, dangerous. It's probably an understatement, but you put your life on the line and you come back and no one really knows what you did. And it isn't that they don't care, but there's just a uh, life goes on in America and you're like, man, you know, you, you kind of get the feeling that you're just a, I don't know. It, I think the movies kind of 
mess you up as a kid. You you see these World War Two movies or something, and you think you're going to be the hero. And what really happens is that if you go out and do something, um, most of the time people don't know, and it's um, you know you see things and do things, and you're just like, wow, it's uh, it's a little bit of a shock that there isn't the level of uh, appreciation that you kind of thought might happen. Um, but I guess it's certainly better than it was for returning vets from Vietnam. And so, and same thing happened in Korea, you know, history constantly repeats itself. They called that the forgotten war after, especially right after world war two, so many men, mostly men, but men fought and died in Korea and it barely made any news. So, you know, that can lead to a lot of animosity. If you see folks injured, we had someone that was injured and, um, it's it's just tough because you're it you start to question some things. So at any rate, I always try to do my best to highlight operations and things that have happened. Probably way too much to get into here as far as the emotional, mental stuff. But that raid happened, and so wanted to make sure I shared that. And we'll go from there. Let's move to China and Taiwan. I wanted to give a big hat tip to uh, Joshua Hughes for sharing the next story, which was from the New York Times and. It says that American officials are attempting to basically turn Taiwan, the island of Taiwan, which is threatened by China, into just a massive weapons depot. So the story talks about that after the recent naval and air force exercises by China, that American officials believe that China would probably blockade the island as a prelude to any attempted invasion or Regular listeners know that we covered that weeks and weeks ago after the Pelosi visit and that I had said that for myself, a blockade is the scariest thing because if China blockades the island, then it puts the onus on America to make the first move. And so then you're stuck with the situation of does America using force try to disrupt or break up the blockade and then at that point china can say hey we were dealing with an internal state affair from this island that had left us you know in the 40s or 50s and so here comes america the big bully and they're attacking our ships so they might try to win world opinion that way and that has always been one of my concerns so the article talks about that seeing that china might do this that Taiwan might have to hold out on its own until the United States or other nations intervened if they decided to do that, current and former officials say. So again, this goes back to what our regular listeners know as well. I've talked a ton about how there's ambiguity on what America would do, even though President Biden has said, I believe it's four times now, that the U.S. would definitely intervene. So if a blockade happens there's going to be a lot of friction on whether or not the U.S. and lots of allies, I'll get into some of those in a second, but there are a lot of Pacific nations that do not want to see uh, China take down Taiwan because that would be the first of what would be additional countries that they're already trying to pressure and bully. So would, the Ty- would America act and with what other countries? So... They're trying to plan for that, and the article just discusses that they want to make sure that there's enough supplies and military equipment on the island to allow it to defend itself. One thing I left in the source notes is that a couple of challenges to arming Taiwan the way they want to. One, 
the United States and its allies are already sending lots of weapons and ammunition, artillery rounds, missiles, etc. to Ukraine. So that's reduced America and many other countries' stockpiles. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and I hadn't ever thought about this, but the companies that make a lot of the munitions, the missiles, etc., they are hesitant to open up new production lines unless they have a steady stream of long-term orders. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that if you're a manufacturer or a company that makes some of these advanced missiles, you don't want to bring on staff at great cost, produce X number of missiles or whatnot, and then have to stop making them in two or three months. You want to know that you can profit from creating this production line and keeping the staff on without having to let them go within just a matter of weeks. So I wanted to share that. Again, huge um, props to Josh Hughes for sharing that with me. And I wanted to thank him for his support. He's been a strong supporter and always enjoy my conversations with him. We talk a bit by email. So wanted to give him a shout out. On that same line, while we're on the um, topic of Taiwan and China, I've got two stories linked in the source notes, and they're actually literally press releases from the Department of Defense. And I've talked about this so many times, how you will find nuggets in publicly available information. Sometimes it's press releases, sometimes it's a a, a spokesperson who's being questioned by the media. And I don't know why some of the stuff doesn't get covered as much as I, I think it can or should be. But... What's crazy is in these two press releases, you can see that the language is increasingly becoming more stern, more um, strong. I don't know any other word to say. You know, I've been covering this stuff for a while, and they used to say that it was like a a peer-to-peer pacing challenge, and they would use these really kind of soft words, and you're not seeing that as much as you were. So this might be a clue. The first one is um, literally a statement from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. And I wanted to highlight one thing. It was a a joint call with Australian Defense Minister and himself. So it was just like a typical press release. They're calling, blah, blah, blah. We remain united, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in it, in one of his quotes that he said, and this is a press release, so they could have cleaned it up. They could have watered it down. They didn't. But the line is, the region and the world face a growing challenge from autocratic countries attempting to change the status quo through threats, coercion, and provocative military activities, and even naked aggression. And he goes on to say, so you could say, oh, he's talking about Russia, and maybe, maybe Iran, maybe you throw, maybe North Korea. No, <laughs> next line. We're deeply concerned by China's aggressive, escalatory, and destabilizing military activities in the Taiwan Strait and elsewhere in the region. So, boom, just like, lays it out. I know he's not a diplomat, but also know you got to keep the generals kind of reined in unless you're not going to rein them in anymore. So, pretty strong statement. A little bit of a shock to be reading a press release and see something quite that clear. There was another one where, um, just was talking about an exercise that was hosted by Australia. It's called Pitch Black. There's 17 countries involved in it, and the Air Forces were involved in it. And what's interesting is that there's a general quoted there, Air Force General Kenneth S. Wilsbach. Again, 
He he's the commander of Pacific Air Forces. This isn't like a little brigadier general or something. This guy's a big big deal. And he says in this again, they could have cleaned this up. It's in a press release. Clearly, China wants to be the world's only superpower, and they actually believe that everyone else has to be a loser and they can be the only winner. And then goes on to say that it's clear that they want to impose their will on the world, especially their close neighbors, and that's that's counter to our objective of being free and open. So, again, pretty strong language from a four-star general, uh, General Kenneth S. Wilsbach. So, the language is starting to get sharper. You know, we've talked in previous episodes, this goes way back to about a year ago before I was even doing a podcast, that I talked about China kind of has to decide something. And that is, does it want to be a part of the world order with this massive economy that rivals America or could potentially outgrow America with technology and blah, blah, blah? Or does it want to go down another path? And in the past year or so that I've been covering it, it's increasingly going down the other path. And American companies are leaving and China is increasingly less concerned with how it's viewed by the world and it's increasingly becoming more of a a bully. And so you've seen this, you know, a year or so ago, they used to try to pressure Hollywood to change movies and scripts, and they try to do it mostly in a nice way and all, but it's just increasingly clear that China is deciding that they don't really care how they're viewed. Maybe they've, I don't want to say they've made their mind up, but at least so far they haven't reckoned with the fact that you can't act the way they're acting and get invited to the neighborhood party on the street, right? So they haven't pulled back yet, and in, at least of late, it seems the language from U.S. leaders is increasingly stern. I was going to say aggressive. I don't want to say aggressive, because aggressive means you're initiating the situation, but they are increasingly stern at a minimum. So definitely wanted to share both of those stories. Love to hear your feedback. If I'm off the mark on any of that, or if you've seen things that further amplify what I'm trying to say or counter it. Maybe maybe the generals were, uh, you know, they've been playing chess a little bit too much that weekend and were just being just a little too aggressive. Maybe. I don't think so. I think all of this is, I don't think things like these happen by accident. All right, guys. So I know I had said earlier that I'd cover the new Arctic Command in America and also some Republican plans for Congress regarding the military if they take the House and uh, uh in November. I'm sorry, I can't talk. But unfortunately, we've run a little long, and um, both the newsletter seems a little long, and even the podcast has run longer than I like it to. So I'm going to do those on Tuesday, assuming I still can and don't have any tech issues from the cruise ship. So anyway, that'll give you something to look forward to. And so with all that out of the way, let's just jump to the motivation and wisdom portion, which I know is for many of you the best part. So let's let's uh, get re-energized and think deep for a second. These are all, as I say, every episode, folks, you can follow on social media, and I'll just read them. The first one, self-care is practicing how to stop feeling guilty for choosing peace over people. That is really good. I'm going to read it one more time. Self-care is practicing how to stop feeling guilty for choosing peace over people. That's a good one. Next one, straight roads do not make skillful drivers. It's <laughs> a great one, isn't it? If you're going through some rough times right now, think about that one. Straight roads do not make skillful drivers. 
Next one. Don't compare your, your beginning to someone else's middle or your middle to someone else's end. Don't compare the state of your second quarter of life to someone else's third quarter. Is that not good or what? Man, we all compare and we all like measure where we are and oh, if I could just be this or that or whatnot. And in the end, which is crazy, but time is one of the most valuable resources and probably no one in the latter stages of their life would wish for less time. You know, everyone would wish to be the younger person that's striving to get wherever it is they already are. So let's not compare too much, right, people? All right, here's the next one. If you have hope in the future, you will have power in the present. That is so good. If you have hope in the future, you will have power in the present. Always talk about that, don't we? Discipline. And when you're beaten down, sometimes it's hard to be like, man, I want to get somewhere else. But it's like if you just have hope, you'll do the things in the present that will get you where you need to go in the future. So continue to believe, people. Continue to believe. All right, next one. Stay private. Keep them guessing. It's pretty good. I'm not too good at that, honestly. I'm kind of a big communication plan. But especially if you have some family doesn't believe in your dreams or something, sometimes talking to them or sharing a dream early on is a great way to have them just squash it. So I, I get what the quote is saying. Next one. One of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. Ooh, that one hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, that one hurts. Because no one wants to get into politics, but then you end up with, in many cases, morons or narcissistic people that aren't necessarily the people who should be dealing with something. But, at the same time, politics is sometimes kind of like a an HOA for a neighborhood of homeowners. <laughs> it's like... No one wants to do that work. Someone has to do it. And so that's that's what we get. You, you get the government that you deserve sometimes. So if you're in one of those people who've not thought about it and you're tired of who we are getting and you feel it, maybe you ought to think about doing it. Because not every politician has to be, you know, not all politicians are bad, and there are some good ones out there, and maybe you need to be one of those. So, I apologize to your spouse if you hear that message and decide at this very moment that this thing that you've been thinking about for months or years anyway, you're going to do it. So, please apologize to your spouse if you do so, and I'm also very sorry that people are going to say some bad things about you, but I guess that's the price of getting in the arena, but we need good people who do that. All right, next one. I, this is actually from... Uh, a uh, command sergeant major in the army. Uh, his last name's Curry. Great guy to follow on Twitter and great guy. I've reached out to him several times. Nice, nice guy. All right. He says, and he, by the way, he always posts motivational stuff. So he's a great follow. So if you're on Twitter, you should definitely follow him. He says this, I don't know who needs to hear this today, but continue to stay inspired. It's really good. Nice and short. And we all need to hear that, don't we? I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. 
I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a twice-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. It sounds cheesy, but every new subscriber I get, and I promise you I get an email for each one, they really do help make my day. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Call a friend or a family member. Do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. So I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath. Breathe. Call a friend or family member one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. I can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the um, social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So, That'd be a great way to help out. Thanks again, everyone. You guys are the best. As always, don't forget to check out my books. You can find all 11 of them on Amazon. And with that, I'm out.